Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Paul Minter was a member of the British Army for 18 years after joining the Household Cavalry Regiment at 16 years old. He served with both Prince William and Prince Harry during his five frontline tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Upon leaving the army, Paul suffered with PTSD and lost several friends to suicide. This prompted Paul to help set up the Head Up charity, for which he has just completed a 5,000 mile run around the coastline of the UK. This phenomenal effort earned him national acclaim during the recent Pride of Britain Awards. Wow. Pleasure to read that, Paul, and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, good. it's always nice hearing a bio about myself and uh, what's, where I've been and what I've done. And it's an impressive list. Um, welcome, Paul. Really good to have you with us today. We want to talk about that, that key idea of challenge. And you've just finished a, a 5,000-mile run that Alan mentioned around the sort of circumference, the coastal line of the UK. Tell us a little bit about why you did that. So, as you said, I was in the armed forces, in the army uh, for 18 years. Um, unfortunately, towards the end of my time, I suffered quite heavily with paranoia, anxiety and depression. I found multiple different ways how I can improve my own day-to-day -day life. Um, during this time, I lost lots of friends uh, to suicide, uh, seven in total by the time I left. And it really prompted me to try and help more people. Uh, for me and some friends, we set up a charity, Head Up Charity, and we're developing a seven-day positive mindset retreat. And we, we don't come from the charity sector. We're not overly business-minded. So we decided to use our strengths, which is kind of grit and challenging ourselves and getting the public attention, media attention. So we've all come up with our own separate challenges. And I thought, what, what a better way than reaching the general public, the media, but also doing a real bit of market research uh, with veterans and armed forces personnel and actually running around the whole perimeter of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Isle of Wight and Isle of Man, speaking to multiple different people, getting people involved and seeing what kind of help people want, what's going right and what's going wrong um, at, in all the extremities around the UK. Wow. And, and, and what did you find other than a hell of a lot of supportive people looking at your Facebook page and, and, and speaking to you beforehand. What what did you find those conversations were centred around, Paul? What were the key themes that came out of those? A lot of people that came to see me uh, were armed forces personnel or families who have said that they have troubles or they don't realise that they have troubles. They just kind of see the struggle that they have as now their day-to-day -day life. And they often think that it's just them that are living with these problems. And when I go around and I speak to them and I say, look, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of armed forces personnel and veterans, and your conditions or what you're feeling and your emotions are very similar to lots of other people. And 
actually just talking to people on a one-on-one basis uh, whilst running or sitting down over a cup of coffee really opens people's eyes up and actually shows them that they're not alone and there are things that they can do to make themselves feel better and they don't have to live like that uh, throughout the rest of their life. This sort of just me idea, this idea, I think you've just, if if I've understood you correctly there, this idea of people just wanting their feelings validated wanting to know that maybe they're not alone and, and they've got every right to feel as they do and there's a way out. Is is that something that's that's a common theme that you've seen from coming from the armed forces and the things that you're obviously having to deal with on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not a psychiatrist or um, I don't have any specialist uh, counselling degrees, but I, ha- I have got very much lived experience uh, from a, a, an extensive time in the armed forces with lots of variation of different friends um, and people that have opened up to me. And one thing I w- would say is when you are in the army, especially over the last 15, 20 years where we've been heavily involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, when you, you go onto the battlefield, it's very difficult for a lot of people to comprehend, but you have to to go to war, which is exactly what it was. You have to be in a certain mindset. You have to be uh, battle ready you have to have a warrior mindset you have to be willing to run into bullets run into buildings not knowing what's going on whether you're going to get blown up you have to watch people get blown up and carry on you have to do what what's expected of you on a battlefield and to get you to that sort of conditioning men- mentally especially in coming from the western world where we're very comfortable takes a lot of hard training and a lot of calluses of the mind and the army are very good at doing it they'll spend years and months getting you to that position and it's and it's only rightfully so you can't go in half-hearted you have to you know really be in the mindset to to deal with what you're about to deal with but what they don't do is they don't bring you back down again and lots of people are coming out of the armed forces or away from tours or away from the training that they're doing in the armed forces with still feeling that sort of aggression that sort of um high level of alertness in their in their brains and they haven't they just haven't calmed down from it and now what happens is they're going into normal life um and they've got frustration they've got anger issues all these sorts of confusion that are going on subconsciously or consciously in their in their mind and they just need to find ways how they to calm themselves down so there's there's a specific and very intentionally developed mindset that's created but there's no sort of um, soft landing on the other side. There's no reintegration back into what you were sort of before, or how you reintegrate back into that sort of civilian atmosphere. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the mindset that you need to be able to go on five tours in the Gulf and and be a part of uh, the army in the way that you were. Uh, you have to be what the, what often happens. It starts from training. Is you get used to not caring, so you'll get what you'll be woken up at all hours of the day in the morning. You, you'll have sleep deprivation. You will be eating pretty rubbish food. So you don't really, you're taking all those, all the comfort that you're used to of growing up uh, is taken away from you to the point you don't care whether you're cold. You don't care if you're hungry. You don't care if you've got to carry 30, 40 kilograms on your back for 10, 20 miles. Um, you just get on with it. Um, and then you get put into a position where you are trained to kill. That, that is the ultimate um, position where a lot of uh, frontline soldiers are put into. So again, you have to 
be put into a mindset where you're willing to do that over and over again, but you also you're willing to watch your friends and potentially yourself uh, be blown up um, and not knowing what's coming around a corner and then keep going, not just day after day, but continuously battle after battle. And sometimes you could be on a mission or, or a firefight that continues. Uh, you ha might have one firefight, it might stop a little bit and another one happens, another one happens. So it's throughout the day and you've got to be willing to, to keep going and not to really think about the consequences that, that or the more severe consequences that could happen. I'm really interested there, Paul, just to go back a few steps. And you talked about getting used to not caring there. And I'm, I met you 15 years ago, and I tell you're a guy that really cares. That must be really hard. And that time when you did come over to Spain and you did a, you did a speech as a young man, it was probably the first time you'd spoke in public to a group of students about your experiences on tour. From then on, you must have done another four tours, I think it must have been by then, 18 yeah. years. How did you keep going back, Paul? What motivated you to keep going back, knowing the dangers that they were there, what you'd seen, and those lived experiences that you talk about? That's the challenge. How did you do it? I think the first thing to recognise is most soldiers, or whatever service you come from, um, they enjoy their job. Uh, like we, I can sit here and I can kind of paint a picture of it being horrific and terrible because of, we're talking about the mental health side. But actually, we were part of a, a really strong group of people, um, men and women. We knew what we were doing. Also, we were helping people. When I, when I saw you 15 years ago, I was 20 years old. I'd just done my first tour. Um, I'd done, I, I was a gunner. We were the first people out into Afghanistan. And I saw the horrific... Uh, things that the Taliban were doing to the local nationals. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to go into graphics because people probably don't want to hear this on the, on the podcast, but it was terrible. And we were chasing the Taliban away and the villagers, women, children, men, elders um, from a Muslim uh, background were coming up to me as a 20-year-old young white guy and kissing my hand and saying thank you. And we were stopping this from happening. So as far as we're concerned, in our heads, we're, we're, the, you know, we're, we're the good guys, we're the the uh, heroes that are coming in and saving people, which is exactly to an extent what we were doing. And But also you get used to it. You get used to going out there and doing it. And it, it's a real buzz to, um, when I, I got, when I saw you, that tour I just came back from, I actually got blown up uh, very badly in an ambush with rocket propelled grenades, which is uh, unfortunately less than half of us survived that ambush. And the other, the, rest, the three of us had to fight our way out of it. Um, and, it took us 20 minutes to fight our way out. We were outnumbered by probably about 10 to 1. Um, we managed to get out. And as, as horrible and as horrific as that, that situation was, you do seem to, you kind of get this invincible sort of phone about you. Like, I survived that. How did, how did that happen? And then the bus wears off. And then you're, like, you're almost chasing it again. It's, it's a very strange one, but you get used to it. So you, you talk there about feeling invincible, but you've seen... You've seen some mates obviously being blown up and dying. Did you ever get to a point that we think it's my time and you, I can't do this anymore? Did it, did it get to that point, Paul? I would say it didn't get to a point where it, I, I didn't want to do it anymore. I certainly got to a point where it was I was like, it's my time. And I actually got to the mindset and 
it happens quite regularly to a lot of people that go back and back and forth on tours is where I, I didn't care about dying. I, I almost wanted it to happen to an extent. Um, and it, it, to, for me, running into a building where there was Taliban on the other side, you know, people might approach you with a bit more caution towards the end of my tours. I was just running through doors. Um, my life didn't seem as important as it would have done 10, 15 years ago, um, which is a bad place to be mentally. Yeah. And that, that's going to cause all sorts of problems later on, which which it did. Yeah, that that's... How did it then transpire then? You, you've done your tours and you've just described there, didn't care about dying and you've got loads of people that care about you and that didn't even go through your head. So then you get back from these tours. What happened I'd say on my, after my fourth tour, so I was part of the Household Cavalry Regiment, as you mentioned in the beginning, but I actually joined another specialist unit called the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, and we kind of work in four-man teams, and we go on in quite often in helicopters and join, uh, sorry, do small-man missions, uh, very quick, very rapid, uh, but very aggressive. And I think I came back from that one, and I'd really started to suffer with paranoia like, terribly, uh, where I'd be walking down the street and I think people were talking about me. I think I, I thought I'd be followed. Um, and I was almost had two minds. I had the paranoia mind and, and then the normal pool mind telling myself to stop. But then the paranoia one would be extreme, a lot more powerful than the other one. And it's a very confusing state. And I've never felt anything like that before. And I thought I was going mad. I didn't know what was happening. But I also, at the same time, generally thought that people were out to get me. Um, and it led to all sorts of problems. So eventually I end up, I didn't want to go outside my room anymore. So I end up pretty much living in my room for months and that led to depression. And it was just a horrible cycle, really. Um, and also I was uh, I was quite high up in the ranks. I had lots of people below me. A lot of people looked up to me because of the stuff that I've done and the courses that I've been on. Um, so I felt like I was letting a lot of people down. So there was a lot of mixed emotions and feelings that I really um, had never experienced before and didn't know how to deal with him there's there's so much that you know in almost stereotypical military fashion you've just delivered in factual statements for us <laughs> you know in that last five or six minutes that's so deep there's so much woven into it one of the things that really jumps out at me and i'm not sure if it's a question or maybe a comment at this stage but you talked about paranoia going from um bashing down doors to to fight enemy soldiers to fight terrorist groups and and obviously in those situations you are face to face with danger. You, you you literally couldn't be any closer to danger if you tried. And then you're coming from that into a seemingly very comfortable civilian life with zero threats around, yet bringing that paranoia with you. It almost seems contradictive, doesn't it? That you would probably almost expect the opposite to be happening. That you'd come to to, to normal civilian life and just think this is incredible. It's a fun fair. I can go and do exactly what I want because. I'm not in that threatened position. Was it always like that, Paul? Um, I, no, not really. Um, this this came a bit later on for me, a bit further down the line. I think what there was a bit earlier on, there, I had quite a lot of um, dreams or nightmares or I'd be very quick to be a, maybe a lot more high-tempered than I would have been prior to have gone, gone on tours. But I kind of dismissed that a lot. It was kind of like, oh, it's a phase. It's going to go, it will pass through or you just get used to it. Um, but 
know, the paranoia came much later on, and I, and I very much think it's a subconscious thing. Uh, I haven't actually delved into it very deep with a psychologist. I'm sure there's um, all sorts of reasons as to why uh, it happens in the in in the brain, but uh, it's certainly not. I'm certainly not a one-off case. of tens of thousands of armed forces personnel that have exactly the same experiences. That that's really interesting. You just said you've not talked through that with anybody. So you're telling me you this incredible guy that's served our country, done five tours, been in the armed forces for eighteen years. And our country has not provided with you with someone to talk to. Am I getting that right, or have you chose not to? So, the, when I finally did get some help from a fantastic doctor who left, he kept telling me to come and see him. Um, the help I got in the army, I felt personally was was wasn't right. I spent that for three months talking to um, a psychiatrist counselor. They're not sure what you'd call them. Um, but I never got any answers, and I kept saying, "Look, what can I do? What you know? I, I keep coming to see you almost two or three times a week. All we're doing is talking, and I'm not I'm not getting anything back." And after three months, I kind of gave up with it, and I said, "Look, this isn't going anywhere," uh, and I moved away from it. But another big problem I found that all the help in the army, what they they keep everything in house. They, they don't like to air their dirty laundry in public, so all of the help. Um, that you get in the armed forces is in their environment. And I said to my doctor that I said, every time I go there, I'm, it, it's not working for me because the only way I can really describe it to them was if I was a burns victim, I wouldn't get help next to an open fire. Or if I was a road traffic accident victim, I wouldn't get help next to a motorway. But the trauma and the problems I've got is from the armed forces, yet all my help is still in the armed forces environment. And I said, it's just not going to work. Yeah, that that's incredible, and, and as you put it so factually, there it's a real missing link that obviously you're trying to provide for now. I just want to come back a step. What answer are you looking for, Paul? To be honest, I just wanted someone to say, "This is what you can do to make yourself feel better." This, you know, people in the armed forces are very much doing people. We're very action. We're very hands on. Um, sitting down and t- for me personally, and I know for many others, sitting down and talking to someone who doesn't really understand where you've been or what you've done, it doesn't really help. If anything, it, it quite often puts more of a victim mark on you. So you've actually gone from feeling quite bad to even feeling even worse because you, you feel like you're, you're a victim case in, in some people's minds. And it certainly was the case for me. So you wanted tools. You wanted something you could grab hold of. You were very pragmatic about it. You wanted something that you could do. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted an answer. I wanted someone to say, well, this is probably the reason why because this is how your brain works this is blah 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 these are the hormones these are your feelings um this is it's not just you there's multiple other people but i just wasn't getting those answers and when when was that, that the, when was ptsd first used as a phrase when was that something that you started to consider to be fair at the very beginning i mean i knew that i'd had it they tried to say that uh, it was probably I was probably going through a, a depressive stage stage in my life, um, and then they kept they kept to be fair they kept trying to go back to my childhood and that's all they spoke about a lot. Was, Tell me more about your childhood. And I said, look, I had a good childhood. I think the fact that I've been blown up twice, <laughs> and I've been on you know spent three and a half years of my life in Afghanistan on the front line is probably more the reason why I'm suffering from paranoia, not because you know my mum wouldn't give me fifty p one weekend when I was eight years old. <laughs> 
That's that's absolutely mentally. Describe to us what PTSD is actually is, folks. There's a lot of phrases out there. And I, I've read a lot of stuff about. I love military history, and I, and, and I love anything to do with military. And LMF was an old phrase, wasn't it, in the First World War and Second World War, lacking moral fiber. And almost that's an ins- an like an insider insinuation. If you're showing PTSD, is it like a a thing where you don't want to show that because it might be showing that you don't want to be there, or it's, it's the old coward thing? It's a horrible word, but is the, is there real tension between those words in the army? Yeah, it's it's certainly something you don't want to be labelled with. Uh, it's 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 come on a long way in the armed forces. They are. Trying to push it a lot, and especially people who have been now the the young people who are in Iraq and Afghanistan in the early days, and now the guys in charge. So they get it; they understand a lot more. Um, but for example, for me, I, I was in charge of of what, sixty men and a bunch of vehicles and a whole load of weapons. I was the, I was the senior weapons instructor. I was the person that was arranging all the live firing ranges. I was calling in helicopters, all sorts of stuff. Um, and always, as soon as soon as I saw the doctor, that was it. I got everything got taken off my cards. I weren't allowed to be in charge of these guys. I weren't allowed to go near a weapon. So everyone's coming. But then they were like, "Don't worry, no one's going to know." And then all of a sudden, people were like, "We need this doing. We, can you can you give us this? Talk us. Can you go and do blah blah blah?" And I'm like, "I can't. I can't." And they're like, "Oh, I see. Yeah." And then all of a sudden, that's it. People just don't come to you no more. And you just you're segregated. And it's not people being horrible. It's it's that you can't do your jobs in what you see you so there is a, a real problem in that sense and, wow. and was that was that something that you welcomed although it was difficult did you need that did you need people to start to leave you alone and to take you off these areas of responsibility or was that counterproductive was that the, the worst thing that they could have done really uh, i don't really know i've thought about this quite a lot um i certainly wasn't in the mindset to be doing it so to an extent i'm glad that they took me away from it um but at the same time it just left me in my room, just just there, festering, uh, which isn't a good thing either. I think personally, in these sorts of uh, situations, which there are many of, there should be a maybe a squadron or a regiment, a sort of rehab place that someone goes to, um, and they spend their time there uh, until they feel ready enough to come back to work. Because you're a, you're a highly prized commodity and. It's took a huge amount of taxpayers' money to train you to that level to suddenly be cast aside because you've got a few issues you might need to talk about. That doesn't mean you can't do your job, does it? Do you know what I mean? Did you try and rehabilitate you so you can do your job? It's like it's like the old Ronaldo thing at the moment, isn't it? He's Man United have got rid of him. He said a few things. He can still do his job somewhere else quite well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, it's such a fast-moving train the armed forces it's changing every single day things are changing people are changing job roles and positions and um if you haven't got the right management in place then you will be very quickly mismanaged and and replaced instantly and that's just unfortunately the way it goes and i can i just go back to alan's comment there and um and maybe maybe just try and explore that idea of at the moment, it sounds like from your experiences, obviously, there's a, a decision has been made, there's responsibilities have been dropped, and you feel a little bit like you said, you, you're languishing in your room, you sat around almost doing nothing. 
there's an assumption maybe that that if with the right support for for a period of months or years you could go back and and do your old job it, is that actually true could you with the right support go back and do what you did before or or is it a change that's happened that, that needs to be dealt with appropriately in a different way it's not something that anyone's ever said to me that there's a potential you can do but i don't know there may be a way if it's, it's very unlikely for me personally but for someone um with the same sort of conditions, who was medically discharged for mental health reasons, if they could prove via doctors and counsellors that that they are better and they want to go back into that environment, and I think there could be a potential that they may be recruited back in, but I I don't know the answer to that. And from your experiences, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what you experienced with PTSD? What what were the things that that really um, made your life difficult during that time? I think it was not having any sort of understanding and awareness of the emotions and feeling and feelings. So I'd very much been on an uphill spiral pretty much my whole career up until the point that it really hit me. Um, looking back and speaking to people, lots of people, friends, family, uh, the wife I had at the time that I'm no longer with, um, they were saying, oh my goodness, yeah, we knew that you had troubles and issues we just but we thought that was you knew about it and you were dealing with it um they'd say they could tell through like aggression or or everything i've done was to an extreme so whether that be a sport or or drinking or whatever it was it was never done in moderation it was everything was full on so did you get into that spiral then paul you, you talked about there's been an upward trajectory and then suddenly all that adrenaline drops right off you're not in frontline service anymore if you don't mind sharing what sort of them things were you then getting into to get your buzz because as a frontline soldier how do you get that buzz back in normal life yeah there's two different ways that that kind of goes you you've got one you've got that that higher buzz that adrenaline need that, that adrenaline junkie seeking sort of a everything or nothing sort of mentality. But then on the other side, like I said earlier, we were trained not to care. So unfortunately, if you're 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 gonna be one or the other, you're either seeking it, um, and if you can't find it, you know, you quite often you go out you go drinking, there's a big drinking culture in the army forces, or there has been, it's 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 dwindling down a bit now, but there has been a very big drinking culture. So a lot of people just come together, but they go out drinking. Some people would take drugs. Um, some quite often people get into fights or they they'll they go out seeking people that were causing trouble, which quite often isn't that hard, and they'll end up getting in fights and in trouble with the police and all sorts of uh, problems that way. Um, but then on the other hand, because you're so used to not caring, if you're on like some sort of downcome, you could just like sit in your room or just be by yourself for a very long time and and just have that sort of numb mindset, which again, is almost just as bad as going out uh, seeking high adrenaline. Yeah. It's it's crazy, isn't it, when to think about just being out there and, and being with your mates, aren't they? Because first and foremost, that sense of belonging must be incredible when you're out there in the army. And then all of a sudden, you're back in civilian life. Where does your sense of belonging then happen? And you talk about not caring, but you did care because you cared incredibly about the people who you served with. 
and then suddenly you don't have that, how do you deal with that lack of sense of belonging? Or has there been something created a result? I don't know. You, you tell me, Paul. So what happened with me is I spent quite a long time, probably between nine to 12 months in a very, very bad place. Uh, and I wasn't alone. There was multiple of my friends that were also feeling really bad, but we were just a big group of people feeling terrible, not knowing what was going on, how how to help each other. Um, and unfortunately, a, a number of those friends took their lives. Uh, I felt like I was potentially in, going in the same direction. And one day I decided, look, I don't feel like the, the work in the armed forces is working for me. Um, I feel like it even I either do something drastic now or I just don't, I don't know where it's going to lead. So what I ended up doing is I, I spoke to my doctor. He was a very, very good guy, thankfully. And I said to him, I need you to sign me off work for three months. I said, I'm going to go and sort myself out. So what I've done is, is I rented a house away from the armed forces, away from the environment. And I didn't really know where to start. So I started to try and change my mindset and have a better, a better positive outlook. So I started looking on YouTube, started reading books, listening to motivational talks, um, started just finding mo loads of different things on how I can improve myself. And I started hearing about stuff like um, morning and evening routines and how best to implement them, learning about um, visualization and affirmations, um, um, learn about hormones and the different hormones we've got on our bodies, how they, they affect us. I learned about nutrition, but not just about nutrition, about what's good and bad for you, but I learned about the microbiome and the gut and the relation to the brain and how it affects our moods throughout the day. I learned about cold water therapy, animal therapy, eco-therapy, the importance of being outside and being in nature. And I started implementing these myself. I really went to, went to town on it. And within about two or three weeks, I felt better than I've ever felt in my whole life. Um, I'd almost say that I, at that moment in time, I was cured for the first time in years that when you know, how I've been feeling. Um, and I had lots of friends that was also struggling. So I reached out to them and I said, look, can I give you some tips, hints and tips? It's really worked for me. And they'd seen where I was before. So I started helping them and they, they recommended me to their friends. And before you knew it, I had about 40 people um, after about six or seven weeks of learning all these different stuff that I was helping on a daily basis. And it re to an extent, I, I was so... I was so happy and I was so overwhelmed of how well this, these different things or small holistic different things I was using each day were, were working for me. But at the same time, I was really annoyed that these things were not being taught on a like, daily, if not weekly basis in the armed forces. And I was really annoyed that I spent months and months of talking to a counsellor that did not work. It probably made me worse when what they should have done is sent me somewhere or talk, you know, given me these sorts of techniques and it, which was so simple to implement in my life. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, I like that that idea of bringing it back around to belonging. You know, you talked about trying to chase something, a dopamine hit, some sort of numbness that just took you out of your reality and the adrenaline buzz that just wasn't there anymore. And then it sounds like you found a little bit of belonging there, Paul, in supporting your friends. And I, I know it's um, it, it, it's probably tough to talk about, but you talked earlier about having a group of friends, several of which committed suicide. What, what kind of impact did that have on you? It was horrible. I spent my whole life losing friends. I know it sounds a bit weird, but I've been, I was on the front line. I've lost a lot of friends on the front line um, right beside me um, and, and people that were just, I, I, I got a phone call to find out about. Um, so it's not something that 
is new in my life. It's not a big shock. But what is a big shock is when you don't really have an answer to something. So someone's taking a life. Um, and I'll give you a great example. A friend of mine who I lived on a corridor with, uh, I had dinner with him the night before. We were talking and laughing and joking about stuff. Uh, and the next morning I woke up, I found him, unfortunately, hanging outside in the corridor. Um, so there was no there was no lead up to that, no reason why, other than he was just dealing with his own with his own demons that he couldn't deal with. Um, and it's just, you know, there weren't, there was no sort of, there was no message. There was no, this is the reason why. So it, it's, it's absolutely, it's devastating. It's, it's heartbreaking for families as well, because they just left never with an answer or a reason why. And, and I imagine, although it's not a, an answer as such, when that happens on the front line and, you know, we're sat here in a, a nice, comfortable house on a couch. We can't possibly put ourselves in that position. But I can only imagine if that happens on the front line, there's there's some part of you from a military background that has been um, that has been trained to think that that is probably going to happen, and and that's something that you need to deal with and you move on. I imagine that's very different when it's uh, when it's a friend of yours taking their own life. How did you cope with that? But so. In coping mechanisms, because I wasn't in a good place myself, it was very sad. Uh, everyone was, you know, was, was devastated. But I, I was kind of just like, well, you know, they've chosen, they've made a decision. They've chosen not to, to deal with their troubles anymore. And, you know, I, I hope they're in a better place. Um, so that's kind of, that was always kind of my mindset, as sad as it was. I, I was always angry because I, I when you lose someone on the battlefield, the armed forces are very good at making them heroic, which is only rightly so. They've done heroic stuff. They, they volunteered and sacrificed for the greater good. Um, what happens if someone in the armed forces takes their life is they're actually given a dishonorable discharge because that's the reason why they're committing suicide because it's, in the, it's still an offence to do so. So the families are given a letter of dishonorable discharge. But for me per, and the many others, there is no difference between the person who got uh, killed on the front line or those that unfortunately taken their life. It's all because of the same reasons. Um, and it is very sad that the person is, one has a, a heroic uh, attribute put next to them and the other is charged as a criminal. Yeah, when, when the war and the experience is the reason for both of those different kinds of deaths in very different ways. Tell me about the proximity of receiving that letter. So the, the families actually receive a letter to say the the, the soldier has been dishonorably, dishonorably discharged. It, it, is that pretty much straight away that they get that along with the news that that person's passed? I, I don't know the whole ins and outs of it. I've just spoken to some families. I'm sh I'm pretty certain that he's done in, in the most tactile way as possible um, and they may not even receive the letter but just told because they're not entitled to benefits after that there is no pension there is no um, payout or anything like that unfortunately so they have to be told in that sense so I'm sure it's done in the most tactile way but it's still not right wow that leads us round then to, to your charity that you've you've helped set up Paul um, heads up right yeah heads up so sounds amazing completely admirable and I suppose that three months then that you took where you're almost locked yourself away, that was your time then to reflect. That was your time to get your ideas together. 
Tell us how then, how did you then get it up and running from that? Because I'm, I'm sure that's where it all started, isn't it, really? Yeah, it, it, it certainly is where the, the seed was planted. Like I said, I was helping so many different people, uh, huge, huge success stories coming off them. And, I, and uh, I, at this point, I've been told you're going to be um, medically discharged from the armed forces, which was the, the worst news I could have ever had. I, I, I was um, expecting to be in the army for the rest of my life up to probably at the age of 65 i was flying through the ranks i was doing really well and then i got told look you, you know your services are no longer required because your mental health conditions and uh, it was devastating oh, for me how did you feel about that it was horrible i, I hated it i did I, did, I didn't expect that news i didn't want it um i tried to fight it but they they made the decision um during this time the covid 19 happened and the first lockdown happened. I was very fortunate. I escaped to the Highlands in Scotland with three friends and we lived in a little uh, hut up, uh, pretty much by ourselves out in the middle of nowhere. And it was lovely. And there, uh, there was a lock called Lock Tay next to us. And it was quite, I didn't know what the circumference of it was. But I kept saying to my friends, I, I want to go run around it. And I'm quite a fit person, but I'm not a long distance runner. I wasn't, I am now, but I wasn't a long distance runner then. And I just, I kept saying, I want to run around it. And one day I just got up and I ran around. I didn't know how far it was. It turned out to be 34 miles. And as I was running around, <laughs> just a short 34. And as I was running around, I um, I came up with the idea. I thought, well, why don't, why don't we set up a charity and start a retreat with all these different uh, positive mindset, holistic methods that I I've been helping other people with, and that helped me so well. Um, and this way we can reach more people and we can take people away from the military environment. We can be a nice, safe space and really make a, a much bigger impact. I said, well, this this is surely what I should be doing. I, I don't want to sit back and just do a normal nine-to-five job whilst I feel like I've got all this stuff to offer people. Um, so, I, But also during the run, um, I was out there for quite a few hours. Also, during the run, I came up with the idea. I thought, well, how about running around the UK and talking to people and uh, spreading the word and getting some attention? Uh, and I came back and I said, I saw my friend, Sai, who is also part of the charity now. And I just said, oh, man, I've got this great idea. And he said, write it down. So I, was just, I started writing it down and we spoke about it a bit. And then I mentioned to a few people, I was thinking about doing this run and setting up a charity. And I think it was a perfect timing because everyone was just coming out of the first lockdown and everyone everyone was keen to get out there and it had that community spirit and everyone to get involved and one of my friends mentioned it to be someone on the BBC and then they phoned me up asking me to come in and I was like oh this is it it's real now isn't it I was only kind of toying with your head <laughs> a few days ago now now I've just spoken to the whole nation that I was doing it so uh, there was no turning back and I you know spoke to a couple more friends who I knew were extremely passionate very well net um, connected and good at networking uh, and between the four of us, that's it. We sat down, come up with a business plan, and then started to develop the charity and going through the through the process of setting up a, a full non-profit charity. And there's, uh, there's not much more in terms of accountability than uh, saying it out loud to the media <laughs> on the BBC, is it? You know, that's uh, 100% accountability. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you wanted to put, put those sort of real-life tools that you'd learned about and that you wish that you'd had. And, and give people um, that heads up supports the opportunity to learn those tools and learn the sort of real life application. Yeah, exactly. And like I say, I've seen so many people benefit from it. Um, and it's not just people in the armed forces, anyone can use these and it's becoming 
more and more popular, as we all know, through cold water therapies and finding out the, the benefits or how, how that helps us. People are talking more about the, the, the gut microbiome and the bacteria we've got inside of us and how important that is, not just for our physical attributes, but for all our systems and especially on our mood and, and mentally. Um, and whole different uh, meditation and breathing techniques are becoming more popular. There's so many different things. And all we want to do is just offer a whole wide range of different things that individuals can use and just give them awareness and understanding. Because there is a lot of people out there that don't have an understanding or awareness or they live in a culture where they think it's all pink and fluffy and it's not for them. But actually, it's, that's not true. Like, you know, it's so important to strengthen the mindset and strengthen um, our mental well-being, just as it is our bodies, if not more so. Yeah, there's so many of these different sort of alternative therapies that are looked upon as sort of dark arts or things that weird, strange people do that want to sit on their own for a long time. You know, <laughs> we have conversations about things like this all the time. And if you're doing nobody any harm, what, what, what's the what's the harm in trying it, you know, and, and doing something to see if it benefits you? And uh, we'll, uh, we, we look back, don't we, over the things that we've done and how we've changed over the last three or four years. And you mentioned a couple there, like cold water therapy. Alan laughs at me when I do that. <laughs> Um, and the, there's there's so many others that we have these conversations around that work for one person that don't work for another. And I think that's a really important message, isn't it? That, listen, there's 101 things you could possibly do, but it isn't necessarily about having to do all of them every day and waking up at 4 a.m. to do your 25 things on your list, but to try and find the ones that are having that impact on you. Exactly. And if people don't know about them, or some people might hear, oh, cold water therapy, and they go, no, that's not for me. But what if you go, okay, look, come over here. Let me tell you a bit more about it. Let me tell you actually how it works. And let me tell you the effects it's going to have on your body, the long-term and short-term effects, how it affects your mind. Um, give them a bit more awareness. And then they might go, oh, actually, that sounds like, that sounds like something I could, I could do with. Uh, and then, or maybe they'll be like, this isn't for me. But two years down the line, their life's completely changed. Or five years down the line, they're in a completely different circumstance. And they go, oh, actually, you know what? This is something that... I remember hearing about this and how good it is for me. I want to give it a go now. So all about awareness and planting that seed. Um, but if someone doesn't know about it, then they can't use it. That's it. It's just sometimes a catalyst. It isn't necessarily the, the thing that causes any physiological or psychological change, but it forces you to do something differently or look at something differently. You, you mentioned there trying to look at something and learn about it. Obviously, everything that Alan and I talk about on this pod is about learning and about trying to approach things with this idea of a beginner's mind and that's from John Kabat-Zinn the good mindfulness guru of, of approaching everything with an idea of curiosity and an idea of well what can I learn from this and it's incredible isn't it how many people you might speak to and, and maybe just throw out a couple of these suggestions and you'll get those immediate answers of oh that's not for me or I'm not doing that or there's no chance you'll catch me doing that and it's sometimes quite interesting isn't it to hear the sort of the virality of the defense from people to say why they're not going to do something that they've never even had a go at. Yeah, I was that person. I was that person about 10 years ago. Up a hill as I can, you know, and, uh, but, you know, once I started to learn about them and started to feel the benefits, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, not everything's for me, but I'm, a, I'm very much aware of a lot of different things. And I'm sure in the future, I'll be trying more and more different uh, alternative therapies 
as I progress and, and change my life changes. So let's go back to that COVID. I mean, COVID's had a massive impact on, I think COVID's had a lot of positive. I know that obviously there's many people suffered and many people died through this pandemic, but certainly in our cases where it, it helped us to sit and reflect about where we were going in our careers and we've progressed significantly since then. For you, it seems like it was a period of reflection and then you've gone on and produced some amazing work with with, with, with Heads Up and then looking at how you did, you went around the, the country with your run. Was COVID then a, a seminal moment for you then in your period now? Uh, so, yeah, COVID, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I remember at the beginning of it, I wasn't in, I've just been told that I was going to get discharged from the army. Um, I Then COVID came in. I was like, well, my goodness, what is going on? Like Everything's happening at once. And I remember listening to a podcast with someone on it, on it, and they were saying, look, we've got two choices that we can make here. Um, you can either sit at home for weeks or months, however long it's going to be, and you come out and you've got to try and find your, your way back into life, or you use these these weeks and months uh, productively, and you come out, open a whole new fresh door, um, a whole new fresh you, come out of your cocoon, if you like, um, and flourish and do something great. And that really stuck with me. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's not fester. Let's not just feel sorry for myself. Let's do something positive. And I think the most positive thing in my life probably has come out of it. Yeah, I, I, it is amazing what you've done since that. And the one question I had right at the start, actually, to come back to is when you're doing your run then, so you've got through COVID, you're on your run. What did you blinking think about every day when you were running? <laughs> How did you get through them days? Was it going oh, back to your life? Were your life like going back there or were you just thinking about what I'm going to do in the future? How how did it work? So we probably haven't got enough time on this podcast to talk about the logistics of the run, <laughs> but it was incredible. Like, I, I, so the run wasn't just a run. I was, I'd done it completely unsupported. Uh, there were support teams that wanted to support Clip the World Record. They wanted to come and join me at certain points or a fan to follow me and I said no I want to engage with the general public as much as possible so I had different people to meet along the way some places I didn't have uh, people people to stay with so I had to try and arrange people to stay with or find someone who knew someone in the area and um, so I was constantly on the phone to people even or even on the run uh, trying to find a location to stay um, I, w- I wanted to give talk- as many talks as possible. I was trying to get business meetings, trying to get people involved, trying to talk to other charities in local areas to find out what's going on with their charities and, and connect and network with them. Um, but also, I was very fortunate to have over 700 people join me throughout the run. So, I mean, the, the longest someone stayed with me was 10 days. Uh, and I think the shortest was a lady around me for 100 meters. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, and it was a great variation. The youngest person was about six years old and the oldest was 74. So yeah. I was constantly talking to people, talking about the charity, about the retreat. Um, but there were many, many hours, days where I was on my own. And um, it, I'm, I'm good in my own head sometimes. And all I'll be thinking about is the retreat, the charity, or I'll chuck on some music and it'd be nice to listen to a music or a podcast I had. I had hours and hours killed to listen to the podcast and um, improve my knowledge and, and strengthen my mindset as I was running around. What we give us an idea of what podcast you were listening to, Paul? 
so I listened to uh, a podcast called The School of Greatness. Uh, it's by a guy called Dean Howe. Um, he's is quite he's a phenomenal person. Has lots of inspirational people, and he's all positive. He's always talking about how people can improve and change, um, and from all different subjects all around the world. They're pretty much every subject you can think of. Okay, and you, you mentioned um, Paul. You, you mentioned no support. You did it with no support. It took seven months. You ran five thousand miles. What 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 does no support look like in comparison to what you mentioned there when they do world record attempts with a support car, etc.? So I I had all my kit in my bag, um, which weighed about between ten to twelve kilograms, I was, and I was covering. I covered I covered on average twenty nine point six miles a day, but they varied. The shortest day was eighteen miles. The longest was forty two miles, and that's six days a week. So some, especially like places up in Scotland, I'd be running all day. Um, I'd, I'd leave a town and I'd run 34, 36 miles on my own sometimes. Um, and I wouldn't pass any shops, wouldn't pass any towns until I get to the next one, which is where I'm staying. Um, and, you know, I could be in heavy wind, snow blizzards, uh, rain, hailstones, all sorts. So it can be quite a lonely place. And, when I'm not supported, I'm completely reliant on myself, what I've got in my bag, making sure I've got enough water. We had, I don't know if you guys would know about it, but we had the um, big heat wave uh, yeah. this year. And, you know, I was, I, I carried, what did I carry? Three and a half litres of water on me. And during the heat waves, I was running like 34, 36 miles a day down. And I, I was down in the southwest coast at that time. And the hills are crazy down here. It's just relentless. And um, I was having to top that up two, three times a day, going into public toilets, topping it up that way, or trying to find a cap, or sometimes even knocking on people's houses, just saying, look, can I top my water up? And but I was very, um, you know, I was unsupported in the sense that I didn't have a fan following me. I didn't have someone to, to throw me food or to take my weight. But I did have so much support through the general public. Thousands of people came out to offer me food and water and just cheer me into the towns and villages or lean out their windows as I'm running past, um, giving me well wishes. So uh, the support came that way. You're running 30 miles a day. Tell us about what you're eating. So I'm a plant-based eater, so I don't eat um, any animal products. So I did have a really good supplement company uh, that, that focus is purely natural, organic stuff, but it also helps take really the toxins out of your body. Um, so I made sure that I had all my supplements, which meant that I, I knew that I wasn't going to be deficient of anything that I was burning off, um, which which meant that I was able to eat anything, really. I had about seven to 8,000 calories uh, to cover each day. So I was, there's, thankfully, along the coastline, there's lots of fish and chip shops, so um, quite, quite a lot of chips were consumed. Um, it wasn't always, to be fair, I was probably the, unhealthiest I've ever been in my life because I just had to get food in me but I, you know but my body was burning it it was just fuel it didn't matter too much it's going to catch up on your body isn't it doing that kind of mileage every day tell us about maybe a few of the physiological challenges you might have faced so I was very fortunate actually not to get any real major injuries however I did quite early on uh, I think maybe two or three weeks into my run as I just as I approached Scotland the Gretna's the, the first first town you come to in Scotland, the southwest coast, uh, I stopped at a, a place and I slipped in the shower and cracked two ribs, oh. which was 
not nice. Um, I did not sleep for at least the first three days, but I was determined to keep going. I said, I said to the, I said to my friends at the beginning, I said nothing's going to stop me from from achieving each day, unless it's like, so severe I can't even move. So uh, the ribs, the ribs were difficult. They that it, they were probably quite painful for three to four weeks, um, and faded away maybe after about yeah eight weeks. Um, but I managed to get through it. Um, and another uh, bit of adversity, I I got bitten by an adder uh, whilst I was out in Essex. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew I was running through uh, an area full of adders, even adders flying everywhere, saying "Do not enter, careful." But I had no choice, and if I some back ran ten miles behind me and tried to find another way around, which I wasn't going to do, so I knew there was a potential I was going to get bitten, which, which I did. But it wasn't it wasn't the end of the world. Uh, it was fine. I just had um, it just caused a bit of damage to my leg, but that was it. Um, and but probably the worst. In fact, by far the worst thing that I've ever experienced, painful-wise, and I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's a thing called giant hogweed. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's that plant that is a killer, isn't it? It's a horrible thing. It is horrible. I never heard of it in my life, and I took a wrong detour down the south of, of Wales, and I thought, being a stubborn person, I thought, I'm not turning back. I'll find another route up here, and I end up going through all these bramble bushes and weeds and these big white weeds, which I didn't know what they were, and I was stamping them down, and I finally found a track, and this instant pain just hit me. Um, the only way I can describe it is if you put your hand over a candle and you get that, ah, pain, it was like that, but continuous, and I looked down, and all my legs were blistered, and uh, it was it was horrendous. Yeah, boss, that's a pretty, uh, <laughs> that's a pretty exciting is going on. <laughs> I'm interested, how many pair of trainers, Paul? Well, you you have know it is definitely the number one question. But uh, how many pairs of trainers do you think I went through over five thousand miles? Seven months, thirty miles a day. I've got to I've got to say fourteen pairs of trainers. I'm going one a month. I'm going to say one a month. Yeah, I'm going well, to go but, seven. Then, but then you've got a factor in. There might have been like adverse weather or the giant ogweed grew in one of them. <laughs> the, the adders bitten through. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going seven. Well, you, you, you know what? You're both. Uh, if, both done very clever clever accurate uh descriptions there because i was supposed to go through 14 that's what i predicted but i actually went through seven oh, um, yes. <laughs> and the whole reason is i, I had a trainer sponsor and the, the trainers weren't really working for me prior to the run and we decided not to go with them which meant i had to buy my own um so if if i had a sponsor i would have, I would have gone through 14 i could have very easily done that uh but because i I was painful my own. I, I I clung on to them for dear life as long as possible. So yeah, seven. Are they like? Have you, are they are they on a shelf at home? Or I, did hope you I hope they're not. They're <laughs> <on> it, <laughs> they were stinking. They were horrendous. People used to pick me up in a car, and I could smell them coming up. Like so, yeah, they weren't good. They were straight into the bin as soon as I'd finished. Oh, oh, I say, they used to take them off at night, and they'd walk themselves to the door for the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. All right, Paul, we're gonna we're gonna wind it down. We're we're very conscious you're a busy man. Um tell us a bit more about the Pride of Britain Awards. How, how good was that? Yeah, it was really good. It was completely unexpected. Uh, I got a phone call whilst out on my run from one of the producers from the Pride of Britain Awards saying, Um, you've been nominated by multiple people for the Pride of Britain Awards, um, and you've been 
dwindled down to the bottom four for the regionals. So I, I was the regionals for Central. So I was living in Leamington Spa prior to, to that happening. And and then I got a phone call saying that I'd won the regionals and I was to go to the Brighton Britain Awards for the, the finals. And I, I didn't win the finals. So a lady who was very worthy won it. And but the, the experience was great. Lots of famous people got to speak to meet Mo Farah, who's one of you know my idols, um, a lovely person. Lots of different people were, were there. And it, to be fair, it was it's just another great way to publicise and get awareness for the charity and something to put next to the charity uh, as we go forward, speaking to corporates and 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 media. Yeah, it's, it, it, just tell us how much did money did you raise in the end, Paul? Uh, so we raised just over £400,000 in our first year of fundraising. Um, some of it come directly through the Just Giving page. Like I said, I was speaking to multiple different uh, businesses and organisations. They were putting money in that way, but also dozens and dozens of people fundraised, fundraised alongside me, um, which really helped. And and that 400000 and all the extras coming in now, so what's the plan now? How is that going to be used to help people? Yep, so we are developing a seven-day positive mindset retreat in Worcestershire. Uh, so we're going through the process of speaking to uh, construction companies, trying to get planning permission um, to develop the retreat, which we're hoping the doors are going to be open by the end of next year, so end of 2023. Um, and anyone in the armed forces or veterans um, from any service, so Army, Navy, Air Force, and even reservists, doesn't matter what their, their mindset or mental well-being is, Anyone can come and use it for seven days, put their name down, put themselves onto a course, and they'll just learn multiple different methods, as, we, as we've spoken about throughout the talk, um, on how they can improve their mental well-being and hopefully go away feeling a lot better, but also having a lot more in, in their toolkit. Uh, we already have an 18-month aftercare package in the way of an app, so they can then load onto this app, and each day it will take them, uh, progress them each day from the teachings that they learn at the retreat itself. Amazing. So you're bringing in those tools and the sort of real life reintegration and that sort of support that people need as they move through that journey. Exactly. Amazing. I, I want to ask you a, a question um, just to finish off, Paul. What, what are your daily well-being go-tos? What's, what's Ooh, your daily routine nice. involved? Um, I'd say one of the biggest things for me, especially first thing in the morning, well, the big thing, best thing to start a morning is a good night's sleep. So if you can get a good night's sleep, you're on to a winner. Um, and there's multiple different ways you can do that. Um, but I'd say gratitude is a big one for me. I love to wake up in the morning, whether I say it out loud, or I'll just say it in my head and just think of a multi as many different reasons why I'm grateful for life or for other people or for, for anything. Um, I think it's really important, important to be grateful. I think it's really important to tick off a few things very early in the morning. It doesn't matter how big or small they are. I like to, you know, making the bed is a, is a tick. You've done it, uh, you know, you've done so you achieve something. Um, making sure that you, you, I don't know, whether it be a few emails or whatever it may be, you might go for a walk for five minutes outside. Just get some nice positive ticks um, going, deep breathing, um, and just be being grateful for the world. It's an interesting one that it's a very army mentality. They making the bed. It comes back to your grounding in that, but there's. A, it was it was a question that asked to a top CEO, what's your biggest tip you can give? It's in James Clear's Atomic Habits book. Biggest tip you can give to start off your day well, and it was making your bed, because if you can make your bed, 
everything comes after that. It's just a habit stacking. Really cool idea. And I'm trying to get my son to do it and like make your bed and you're gonna have a good day. It's like, what are you on about? Any look? Any look? It looks it looks amazing if I'm like just like trod on him or something, like no, it's just make your bed and it stacks it for the rest, and then it's brush your teeth, and then it's right, get your school bag ready. It's, it's stacking, isn't it? It's basically a good one. But so thanks for sharing them, Paul. Last question from us, and we'll let you get on your way. We, we love this one. Three people you love to go out for a beer with or go out for a nice meal with, could be dead or alive. What would you talk about? What would be a learn? Who would you like to learn from? Oh, um, I'd say three people would be, I'd really like to meet uh, Winston Churchill. I yeah. think he would be a very interesting person. Um, I don't, I'm not actually sure if I'd get on with him or not. I just <laughs> think that he's such a charismatic, um, outgoing person. And I think he, he'd, have, he'd have a lot of stories to tell. I think the, the night would be very entertaining with him. Um, I'd like to meet... Um, the guy that I spoke to about who his podcast I listened to called Dean Howe because um, the amount the, the people that he's spoken to the way he comes across um, is is fantastic. He certainly has helped to to direct my life in a more positive way. Okay, I'm sure he's um, from you, Paul. If you drop him a line, there's a lot of the podcasts now that that love that in, that interaction and. If you listen to your story, I'm sure you might get on there. Yeah, well, yeah, I might do that one day. It'd be it'd be fantastic if that could happen. And the third person's a difficult one. I think um, it'd have to be someone who's had a real impact on on the on on Earth and is a very spiritual person. I'm a, I'm a quite I'm a quite a spiritual person myself. So someone. Um, like Gandhi or something, someone like that, and I have to have a good think on that one. But someone very much in the spiritual sort of sense that I can learn from. It's been an incredible experience to talk to you, Paul. I wonder before you go if you could uh, share with the listeners where they can find out more about the Heads Up Charity, the work you're doing, the run that's been completed. Yeah, so uh, our full title is Head Up Charity. Uh, if you Google Head Up Charity, uh, multiple things will come up, you know, different media platforms, but you'd also find all our social media. You can type in into any social media platform, Head Up Charity, you'll find it that way. Our website is head-up.org.uk, but you should find that through the Google search. Um, we've got promo videos on there, brochures, everything detailing about what we do. And if people listening not in the armed forces or not in the army and they think that it's not relevant for them um if you know anybody who is in the armed forces or veterans please let them know about who we are the number one thing that we're trying to do is let people know um, the different services that are available to people that need it even if they don't think they need help there may be a time in their life when they do but also we're open up we're open to it well when we do open it's open to anyone um, so we're trying to capture people at all different stages of their uh, mental um, strength and me mental well-being. Phenomenal work you're doing, Paul. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on to have a conversation with us and uh, good luck with what you're doing in the future. Oh, thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami. 
the number one eco-kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.